Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Everyone tells you Italian wedding soup is the soup Italians eat at weddings. Like, okay, cool. The name sort of says it all. But what a caricature. <laughs> yeah, like so many things. When you go to Italy, you realize that the story is much different. If you served soup at a wedding, people would ridicule you for life. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we have Katie Parla. She's a Rome-based journalist and the author of two cookbooks, Tasty in Rome, and the newly released Food of the Italian South. Also on the show, we have Amy Zittelman, one of the three sisters behind Philadelphia's Sum Tahini. But Matt, what did you and Katie Parla talk about? Katie Parla is one of my favorite food writers, hands down. She is a master wordsmith and an incredible talker. And Anna, talk we did! She knows more about Italian food than probably anyone else I know, anyone else I can think of. No, nah, she's a straight-up expert. She's been living there for over a decade, I think like 15 years. Um, we talk about her new book and traveling through these regions of Italy that don't really get tourists. We talk about Campania, where there are no tourists. And really, I don't think the Google van has made it there, so there aren't really even maps. She, she drove around without maps. Talk and- about uncharted territory. For sure. This is a part of Italy that hasn't been covered in, in too many English language cookbooks. Uh, but it's really it's not really a cookbook. It's more of like a food ethnography uh, d- documentary. I, I love it. But with some recipes, right? What is the food like in the book? Yeah, there's lots of recipes. Uh, one talks about like uh, focaccia and all these like staples of the uh, Italian South. One recipe I really like talking about was Italian wedding soup. And did you realize that Italian wedding soup isn't really served at weddings in Italy? Who knew? I pictured it at every single Italian wedding. Yeah, maybe in maybe in like South Brooklyn, but definitely not in South Italy. Here's Matt talking to Katie. Katie Parlow, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm I'm a huge fan of yours. I feel like we've known each other for about four or five years. You've written some stories for Taste and some other publications. Tell me, are you still you're still into Italy, right? You're still into this idea of, of writing about Italy. Yes, but first I'll say I'm a, back at you. Like I'm a fan as well, oh, and thanks. I'm so pumped to see you. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I'm still into Italy. I love Italy, and I think my uh, 16 years there is like coming up, my big anniversary. So, yeah, so it's like not only my into Italy, like it's my life. It's your life. You are <laughs> a local. Tell me your first job, one of your first jobs I remember um, was uh, working at a school. Yeah. Tell I, me about that. That's really, <laughs> I love well, story. you know, like I didn't know anything about living or working in Italy. Uh, much less how to find a job there. So yeah, the first gig that I had was teaching Roman topography, which I mean, of course, like very 
basic topic to 14-year-olds at a boarding school. Sure, they were super into that idea. Um, well, yeah, I was both a terrible teacher as well as highly unqualified, and they were very disinterested in the topic. But I thought it was a great yeah. subject, studying Rome through the lay of the land. It's something that I still love thinking about and talking about. So I and didn't the- impress any students, but I... I entertained myself, at least. <laughs> yeah, and you learned about Rome, and you went on to write a book about Rome, which came out a few years ago, three years ago. And now you've tackled southern Italy. Um, the first question I wanted to get into in reading the introduction, a big part, was that there's actually a difference between southern Italy and the Italian south. You're tackling the Italian south. Yeah, so southern Italy is just sort of imagine everything south of Rome plus Sardinia and Sicily, whereas South Italy is more defined as the Lower Peninsula. Um, and if you've ever traveled to Italy, it might feel like a really small country, but it's so diverse. And while I'm obsessed with Sicily and Sardinia and their wonderful islands and everyone should visit them, I really wanted to focus on the South and the peninsula because then I could really dive very deeply into Basilicata and Molise and Campania and places that maybe people haven't even heard of. And you talk about this in the book. You write about it. Uh, these are regions um, of Italy that rarely see tourists in many places, if, if somebody's never seen tourists. Tell me, why should we go there? Well, I think people are already going to South Italy. Um, the Amalfi Coast, for example, is in South Italy. Um, simply open your you know Instagram account to see how popular Puglia is right now. Um, there are places in the South that people are already visiting, but the South is massive. And the places that people go to are really limited to the ones that have had um, either sort of 20th century tourism development or 21st century tourism development. Um, But they're few. So you should go to the other parts of the south, whether it's the coast of Chilento in Campania, because there aren't tourists there. And you can have this really unspoiled seaside experience. Probably what the Amalfi Coast was like before the 1950s, plus cows graze there. You have like real life farmers growing things. And it's, I think, a much more um, realistic depiction of what the life in Italy and especially the South is like, rather than the places where there are bus tours Choked and cruise tourists, ships. Yeah, right. Exactly. Now, getting around this region and just tell me a little bit about the reporting that you did for this book. I mean, what's it like to just travel around this region? Where were you staying and what were you eating? Let's talk oh my about God, that. so many things. Um, so I live in Rome. So most of my travel was by car. I don't own a car, so I would simply rent one at Termini Station or maybe I would fly to Bari or take a train to Naples and then drive. Um in areas with, let's say, varying road conditions. It's a crazy place to drive. I've, I've yeah. definitely witnessed that. It's like a lot of parts that I travel to, especially in Molise and Calabria, had not seen the Google car. Like, there were no accurate maps. <laughs> but that's part of the adventure. I mean, remember traveling before smartphones? You can still really feel like you're discovering something when you're in the back roads of, of Molise um, and the mountains of Campania. It's it's spectacular. So I was staying at a variety of places, depending on where I was. Um, in uh, in the Sanio, I was staying with friends. In Irpinia, I was staying on a farm. In um, rural Calabria in the Sila, I was staying in a, a bed and breakfast. And, you know, in the probably hundreds of trips that I've made from, you know, when I moved to Italy in 2003, which is where my interest in the South really starts, to the present, 
Um, I would say a lot of the places I stayed were sort of rural homestays. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, like you could just sort of be sleeping on a farm. The breakfast that you're that you're served is made from, you know, naturally fermented and uh, bread made with home-milled flour and honey that's collected from bees that sort of pollinate things on the property. It's really, it's special. How would you then pick apart the, the regions um, in in pulling together your recipe list. It's a cookbook and there's it's chock full of recipes. I love the head notes. They're full of history and stories and it's just a pleasure just to read it. Thank you. I haven't had a chance to cook for me, but I will. But how do you tackle uh, this project? How are you getting these essential recipes together? So it's a, you know, it's a, a couple of things. Um, and as a cookbook writer yourself, you know that even if you want to put 14 tripe recipes in a book, you may not. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of obstacles to that. There'll be some red pen in that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I was sort of stepping back to think about the South and providing people with a sort of panorama of culture in the five regions that the book covers, I wanted to hit on certain themes and I wanted to cover certain topics and I wanted people in the U.S. and generally outside of Italy to be able to cook the recipes. Um, so uh, I wanted things like tomatoes and eggplants that really do define a lot of Southern or, uh, or the cuisine of the South um, and are readily available sort of everywhere um, to, to really be foundations of a lot of recipes. I wanted stale bread and its various uses to be spotlighted because when you travel to South Italy, I think some things that, that people remark on is just how many uses there are for breadcrumbs, stale bread, and um, in whether it's in fillings of, you know, stuffed into squids or um, turn into meatless meatballs. Um, and that's a straight economic choice, right? It's, it's an economic choice. It's it's a commercial choice in a way. I mean, until pretty recently, many villages would have a single bakery yeah. and the bakery would cook once a week. So they would be baking off loaves that people made at home and would, you know, respond to the guy with the cart going down the street being like, hey, y'all, like, give me your bread. <laughs> the guy would bring the bread to the bakery and deliver it to the home and and uh, once it was baked and that would be people's bread for the week for the week and that's what I mean by economic to clarify it's it's um, a region that's more rustic and there's less um, resources so totally speak. and infrastructure is also challenging so while there are you know abundant grains on the Morgia plateau that straddles Basilicata and Puglia you know there's a dearth of grain in in other areas and so that affects how people how much people consume in terms of like bread and pasta um and yeah i think the economy of the south is a really uh, fascinating subject and one that shape continues to shape the recipes of those five regions. You write, so much of what we know and enjoy as italian food today comes from this place the Italian South, but we forget to honor and appreciate it. Talk about let's bring bring it back to America. Yeah, I mean, when you think of Italian food or Italian American food, you think of like mozzarella and tomatoes and eggplants and um, these sort of foundational ingredients that are sometimes just sort of declared Italian. Um, their origins diluted by this national term, when in fact you know mozzarella is produced in specific areas. Um, and buffalo mozzarella in particular is sort of hyper-regional and produced in Campania um, because water buffaloes were brought there in the Middle Ages and the conditions were perfect for, you know, raising that type of animal. Um, and, you know, I think people who enjoy Italy um, 
and might not know the differences in regional cuisines are really ready for seeing how ingredients arrived from the New World or from the Arab world were integrated in the 16th century or the 9th century and continue to leave their mark on specifically regional traditions. Speaking of Buffalo mozzarella, you, you have a bone to pick with Buffalo mozzarella in the book about the, <laughs> how it's like not a great, it's not a sustainable product. And there's a lot of Buffalo mozzarella that isn't quite, isn't good, right? Yeah, I think one of the themes of this book, and just I think my writing in general, is that a word that has been married to a concept of quality. So like mozzarella di bufale di campagna is something that has been marketed as a symbol for quality. Well, if you claim that all mozzarella di bufale di campagna is of quality, well, that actually debases the really small farms that are doing excellent work and treating their animals kindly because there aren't that many small farms. And really the majority of buffalo mozzarella is mass produced um, and the milk comes from exhausted animals. And it's really on the consumer to educate his or herself about these things. The tools aren't necessarily out there, but I hope that you know, the features in the book do enlighten people. Yeah, it's, it really does. I, I think I'm, I learned a lot in just I've, I've had the book for a limited amount of time and I, I've just really just sat down and read it. And I, I love that about it. Let's talk about a couple of these really iconic dishes that you dive into. I wanted to just get your kind of like 20 to 30 second history. I know it's hard, but I know you can do it, Katie Parlow, because you, <laughs> you, you know your shit. Uh, let's talk about Italian wedding soup. Oh my God, this is my favorite thing because it's one of the many dishes that I sort of learned about um, before I moved to Italy. And everyone tells you Italian wedding soup is the soup Italians eat at weddings. <laughs> like, okay, cool. The name sort of says it all. But what a caricature. <laughs> yeah, like so many things. Um, when you go to Italy, you realize that the story is much different. First of all, if you served soup at a wedding, people would ridicule you for life. Um, weddings are places where you display your status and your wealth. You serve meat and fish and all these sorts of things that might not even coexist on a normal festive table. Um, but at a wedding, like people just really go all out. Um, instead, Italian wedding soup, the translation in Italian is minestra maritata. Really, that should be translated to wedded broths. Um, minestra tends um, to sometimes be mistranslated uh, as a soup, but it's really a broth. It's marriage. Vegetal. Yeah, it's a marriage together. of flavors. Yeah. And back in the day, people used to uh, forage dozens of herbs and leafy greens and then simmer them individually with different meat broths and sort of combine them all together in this delicate balance. Um, and home cooks who still want to preserve this tradition in Italy today, especially in Campania, they don't bother with the individual treatment of these things. They sort of mix it all together. Um, and, you know, one of the features of the book is I wanted people to make dishes that are traditional and used to be very time consuming and then adapt them in a way that people yeah. will actually cook them. So it's a it's a metaphor, yeah. Italian wedding soup. For sure. Yeah, it's not literal. I love that. Focaccia. Focaccia is like one of those things that you you see it in every Italian restaurant, it seems. But it is truly of the South. Yeah. I mean, you find various incarnations of focaccia throughout Italy. Focaccia barese, the version that you encounter in Bari, um, which happens to also be on the cover of the book, um, is one that is very light. It's made with the durum wheat that's harvested now an hour's drive. Um, it includes 
potatoes for like a lightness and a starchiness. It is studded with olives, normally with the pits in. You always learn this the hard way on your first <laughs> yeah. trip to Bari. Um, and halved cherry tomatoes. Um, and people don't really make this at home. It's something that you go to a forno or a bakery to get. So the idea, and I collaborated with my awesome friend John Rayafalk for the um, for the baking chapter, is to make a recipe that you can produce at home and still has that sort of like fried crispy dough bottom that you would find in a beret. And so there is a technique that, because I feel like that would be a huge challenge for me as a home baker. You can do this. Mm. The recipes are things that you can definitely do at home. Yeah. Um, it helps to have a cast iron pan, um, but you can, you know, I suggest all sorts of ways that you can sort of cheat the, um, uh, the, the materials that every cook in the South already has. Let's get to your story, your, your family story. I think it's really interesting. A lot of uh, Italian-Americans um, assume or further the, the narrative that their family came from Naples. That is where many Italian-Americans identify with. But as you write, your, your story is maybe emblematic of the American immigration experience a bit and, and actually the accuracy around that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? For sure. Yeah, I think my family's story is so similar to others um, in that, you know, my ancestors just reported they were from Naples because that's the port that they left from. It's the literally the port. So they could literally the port, which is so fascinating. Yeah. People say like we're Barese or we're like, you know, from Reggio Calabria because it happened to be the port of departure. Well, to get to the port of departure, my family had to travel hours. Um, we don't know how they got to Naples, but I can tell you even driving from Naples to Spinozo, a tiny village in Basilicata, um, takes around four hours um, through treacherous territory. And perhaps they had carts, maybe donkeys, maybe they walked. We don't know. And certainly when my family landed in New York Harbor, they weren't eager to talk about their journey. And the entire family history started anew mm. in the late 19th century when they landed. And my family, until my grandmother died um, about 10 years ago, everyone just said, like, we're, we're Napolitan. Like, that's it. End of story. Don't ask any more questions. But we found some family documents and a little family tree that actually allowed us to trace our lineage to Spinoza, this tiny village with, you know, a couple hundred people maybe um, in the mountains. In, Beautiful in writing in the book where you, you detail that that journey. And I, I highly recommend you to pick up this book and just to read it for that that family story. It's great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Let's talk about your um, your journalism career because outside of these books, you're you're collaborating on on cookbooks. Um, one is with um, Evan Funky from Los Angeles. Um, consider a bit of a, a pasta maestro. How's that going? And what's what's that like? Um, yeah, it's really fun to collaborate with chefs, and Evan is super like disciplined and very passionate about pasta. Fatta mano. So he only wants to make pasta that is made with a mattarello. That's the large wooden rolling pin. Um, if you follow him on Instagram, you might be familiar with the hashtag fuck your pasta machine, um, which is his sort of declaration against the, the rolling pasta machine. That is machine. the name of the book, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I wish that would be super cool, but I don't think that's going to happen. No. <laughs> 
Um, but what's it like working with him and testing these recipes? I mean, a pasta book sounds incredibly challenging. There's a lot of variables there. Yeah, I mean, I think, frankly, like, I started writing this book after having finished two other cookbooks, so it felt so easy, and I was so in the zone. It was like, oh, a pasta a pasta book? It's just about pastas and sauces? Like, that I can do. Rather than, you know, a book like Food of the Italian South, where you've got, like, the antipasti, and then there's the pizza chapter. It was more like a highly laser-focused, Bolognese-style pasta book that's focusing on a single city, which I'm really comfortable with, and... Uh, set of techniques that are that are really honed. So you and Evan w- w- would travel through Italy or are going to travel? Do some so, yeah, we spent a little bit of time together in Bologna, but a lot of the book is about how to make those special Bolognese mm-hmm. pasta shapes. Um, so, you know, most of our time together was spent in a booth in Felix in Venice, Los Angeles, <laughs> um, talking about, you know, how he wanted to represent the city of Bologna and its and its recipes. Let's talk about a restaurant in Rome, uh, Satimio uh, El Pellegrino. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I downloaded your app about five years ago, and I went to that restaurant, and I had the most magical experience. I love it. Uh, fast forward a few years, Anthony Bourdain is dining there um, without actually telling any of his audience, right, that he's there. Yes, much to the surprise of owners of Teresa, of owners Teresa and Mario, who believe that they would be, like... You know, but I'm blasting that. No, <laughs> they thought people were going to talk about their place. They're incredible. The name was withheld. The name was withheld. Backing backtrack to my trip there, I went a second time and I had a fresh pasta take the towel and I had a beautiful braised meats. I love that restaurant. I want to actually give it a plug here because I love it. Is it still good? Yeah, totally. I mean, it never changes. Um, the Location on Via del Pellegrino might seem touristy because it's so close to Piazza Navona and Campo dei Fiori, but um, you have to ring a bell to get in, which puts a lot of sort of random people that just accidentally discover it off. Um, people go there because they've heard about it, they've been recommended by a friend, um, or they've Googled where did Bourdain eat in Rome that he wouldn't tell the name of, <laughs> and then found my you know your my, blog my post. blog post about yeah. it. Um, and yeah, it's like it's one of those. Um, Trattorias that's disappearing. I mean, uh, Teresa, who is, you know, the chef there, um, is aging and like there's no one else in the kitchen with her. So it's one of these places that you sort of have to go support because this is the last generation. Let's say it one more time slowly the name of it Settimio al Pellegrino. Reader, listener, please go there. It's a beautiful place. Katie Parr, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Such a delight. Here's Matt talking to Amy Zittelman. Amy Zittelman, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I love Sum Tahini. I had to have you on the show, this just is, straight up. This is really surreal for me, so I really appreciate that, and I'm excited to talk about Sum. I mean, first off, I, I was just saying, like, this is you have run like the dopest tahini company in America by far. It's influential. You, all the chefs love it. You're growing as a consumer product. Has it always been this way? I'm blushing, actually. And and no, I mean, I would say it's been a, a steady stream forward or chug-a-lug of our engine. But um, when we started off, nobody really knew what tahini was. I mean, chefs did, of course. But a lot of chefs came back at us when I said, you know, hey, can I bring a sample of my tahini? They'd be like, why? No, you know, you know, I never even thought tahini was supposed to taste good. So, you know, it really has been an uphill battle, but I'd say we're kind of reaching um, a, a, 
a climax of that, which is really exciting, to make tahini a more familiar ingredient in the American mm-hmm. market, to make it more accessible and easy to use, fun to use. So uh, dope is the coolest <laughs> way to describe it. So tahini is a, is a paste made from toasted and ground sesame seeds. Um, but really, there's so much more um, to to the process. Um, I want to know, like, how did you and your sisters get into this business? And, and what, um, in general, are you seeing? How are you seeing chefs use tahini? It's a really good question. Well, we kind of fell into tahini through a relationship or now really our brother-in-law. So our sister Jackie has been living in Israel for over a decade. And at the time, back in 2011, she was dating who's now her husband, Omri. And Omri had been in the tahini industry in Israel for a long time. He was a sort of broker buying from large manufacturers and selling it to caterers or hummus restaurants all across the country. And when my oldest sister, Shelby, she's really the business brain out of the three of us, when she was living in Israel for the year and met Omri, got to taste his product, you know, you know, getting to know his sister's boyfriend and just realized, wow, this tahini is better than anything we knew about in the States, had found accessible in the States. And so she called me and just said, you know, let's find out all we can about tahini. And that's when the reality came in, which was no one knew anything. And let me just jump in and ask, we have known about tahini yes. as a American, uh, as an American foodstuff, but really it was the cans that my mom, as a as a hippie in the 60s and 70s, would buy at the health food store. And we'd have that tin, we won't say the brand, but like very iconic tin yes. in the back of the fridge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it would sit there. <laughs> and you were lucky because you had a hippie mom, right? Yeah. But only hippies knew about tahini, you know, 30 <laughs> 30 years ago, when we did our market research in 2011 and we asked people, are you familiar with tahini? If people knew what it was, they only knew that tin that sat in the back of their fridge went bad after they made hummus once. You know, it was like oil on top, chalk at the bottom. But other people said, you know, what's tahini? So the follow-up question to that is, are you familiar with hummus? And so that's really been the evolution of making tahini a more staple ingredient in the States. We owe it all really to you know, God forbid saying it, but Sabra, because if hummus hadn't become more accessible, then tahini never would have had that chance. But really beyond that, it's the chefs. It's these chefs that are making tahini more popular, more exciting, back to your first question, and really helping us to, you know, prove our concept on the ingredient. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think hummus is the great gateway to a lot of things. It's not just to tahini, but to, you know, the foods of of the Middle East. I and think the flavors. And the flavors. Totally. And I wanted to ask you about that because uh, we have covered this extensively on Taste and uh, on the podcast we have many chefs and thinkers talk about the rise of Middle Eastern cuisine, Israeli cuisine, etc. But I mean, it's been pretty remarkable in the past five years, and I don't see it slowing down. I don't think so either. And we got so lucky that we came to this opportunity while, you know, Middle Eastern food was on the rise. But I was talking about this recently with a friend, and it's the undercurrent of a lot of other quote-unquote trends or dietary preferences that's fueling Middle Eastern and Mediterranean food, which is plant-based, healthy eating, you know, simple ingredients, but like really bold flavors. And so all of this kind of builds on itself in the currents of the rest of the mm-hmm. food industry. So I'm buying, uh, you know, a jar of your of your premium tahini, just, uh, you know, it comes, you can get it in the mail, you can get it at Whole Foods. I've, seen, I've spotted it all around in many states. So it's not just especially product on the East Coast. So I'm buying this jar. And what so what am I doing with it? How am I? I mean, we can make hummus. And of course, there's plenty of recipes out there. Shout out to Mike Salmanov's, uh 
you know, five-minute hummus recipe. I think it's a really good one. It's a really good one. Uh, quick 16 ounces of tahini, which you can get, you know, in our full jar on our website if you can't find that in stores. We're actually not in a lot of stores across the country, so thank God for e-commerce. Maybe but I'm just, like, going to the right stores. Maybe, I, I swear you, I've seen it in lots of stores. And you live where our, our in-store yeah. market is, which is between New York City and Washington, D.C. The same yeah. with, you know, how we got to start our business based in Philadelphia. Got it. Easy access to those two cities. So we're really concentrated in this area. But to reach people across the country, we're shipping either on Amazon or really sumfoods.com. But, um, you know, we want people to take it home and use it from anything from salad dressing, sauces and marinades to baked goods and smoothies and ice cream. And so that was what inspired us. You know, our mantra for tahini is that it's just three things, delicious, nutritious and versatile. But then you can take that in so many directions. And so, you know, I use it at home as a topping on my Greek yogurt in the morning or I put it in cookies instead of oil or baked goods. It was one of the first things that I gave to my son, who's six months old now, because of the health benefits. So it is just a really ma- – we're, we're continually inspired by it. You know, I've been eating and talking tahini since 2011, and I still find new ways to use it. Com- completely. And, and I think chefs are reinventing it. You know, I'm seeing it with vegetables a lot. I'm seeing it in baked goods, as you mentioned. We've written about the tahini uh, usage in baked goods. Mm-hmm. I love that about tahini. Tell me a little bit more about you as a company. You're, you work with your two sisters mostly. Is that is that uh, what's that like? That must be pretty special. Must be challenging at times. It's a family business. Mm-hmm. I've been really lucky. Well, we grew up in a series of family businesses. I'd say both of our parents were entrepreneurs, so business kind of always trickled into the house. Whether it was talking at dinner or going out to lunch on the weekends. But um, but working with my sisters has been awesome. You, you know, the three of us we look a lot alike. People think we're triplets, but we really couldn't be more different. And that's helped a lot in terms of our roles and responsibilities, you know, being able to do the skills or the things that interest us within the business has just been so lucky. So tell me, um, uh, Mike Salmanov, a a chef in Philly, how did you connect with him? Because he was the first person who mentioned your brand. And I think he's been a great evangelist. And I would imagine he's probably not a paid endorser. He's just all about... Mike, if you want to get paid, I will. I swear you're the best (laughs) guy ever. He's never asked for a dime. Oh, never. Of course. He's such a mensch. I mean, yeah, he, is. he is just a good guy, him and Steve Cook and their yeah, entire organization. Too. And we got really lucky. Shelby knew Mike through the Jewish community in Philadelphia. And part of that initial market research, we really just asked Mike for a meeting, which was to ask him, what tahini are you using and do you like it? And when he told us that he didn't like the tahini he was using and it wasn't consistent and all these things, we said, you know, we're thinking about bringing tahini over from Israel. And he's like, you should do it you know, I'll buy it. And we're like, okay, Mike, you're so nice. Why don't you taste the product first? So when we got that first import, I can picture this like it was yesterday. This was back in May of 2013. I said, hey, Mike, we got the product. Can I bring it over and sample it with you? So he sits me in their, you know, private dining room with Mike and Steve and Yehuda Sechel. And we taste the tahini compared to the other tahini. And they're all like, yeah, it's better. It's great. Can you deliver it? And I said, sure. He's like, just pull around back. If you can find our loading dock, you're in. So every Tuesday for like a year and a half, I would deliver our buckets there. And he has just been the nicest, most supportive guy ever. And that's really important to us because we believe tahini and Sum Foods as a business. We want to be value added, right? We want to make their food better. We want to support them in their endeavors because they're doing the heavy lifting here. They're making these incredible recipes and food putting out there and validating us. And so we want to support them back. And we're really, really dedicated to Mike and his team.
So are you importing from Israel now? That's how it's made. So it's not it's not made in the States. So Correct. this is import. It's made where in Israel is it made? It's made in different areas yeah. around Israel. We work with a couple contracted manufacturers um, in the north, in the, you know, outside Jerusalem, um, all over. And we really make sure that they're using the right kind of sesame seed from Ethiopia. It's called white Humera sesame. It grows in the northwest region. And there are different grades of white Humera seeds, too. And so we demand a certain grade. Um, Jackie, my sister there, taste every batch of tahini pressed for Sum before it gets a full fill. And that way we can approve it before it ships. She's based in Israel? She's based in Israel. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. So Jackie and her husband and they have two daughters still live in Israel. They manage everything. Or Jackie really on that side of the Atlantic Ocean. Once it gets on a container, Shelby and myself and then our, we call it small Sum crew, we pick up the logistics, sales, operations out of Philadelphia. Yeah. Let's talk about Ethiopia. I think that's really neat that, uh, you know, you you do a buying trip every year, right? And you buy the white sesame seeds, right? Yeah, we wish we could buy more directly. We're still yeah. working on that. Um, the Ethiopian government really funnels through a, a public commodity exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, but we go up there. We've gone with a couple friends on two trips in a row now to see the peak of the sesame harvest because we really are passionate about the seed, where it comes from, and the entire supply chain. And the other question that we get a lot is, what does sesame even look like. And so we want to be, you know, the authority on we want to know everything that we can with what we're doing, and then really process that information and share it with people. And that's what we're passionate about. You know, we found tahini, we want to share that with people. Ceylon too, we, we, we're glad we have it. And then our goal is for people to have access to it. Let's talk about uh, your extension in products because you're, you, you've branched out from the traditional tahini to other products. Um, so talk about those a little bit. Sure. So our second product that we introduced was in January, just about a year after we started. We realized that not everybody was familiar with tahini or comfortable bringing it home and using in all the ways that they wanted to. And um, one of the products that we saw on the market that we loved but we thought could be better was Nutella. Um, you know, sorry, we're not naming other names. But, um, <laughs> no, that's okay. So we created a chocolate spread. It's tahini with powdered sugar and cocoa powder. And we were hoping that this would be a really great gateway for people to become more familiar with tahini, also in that sweet application, and then want to eat it all the time. Um, the next thing that we just started selling just this year is called Ceylon. It's a date syrup, 100% steamed and pressed dates. And when we really thought about what Sum was, we realized that we were purveyors of these amazing ingredients. And the thing that was important for us was that mantra, right? Delicious, nutritious, and versatile. And Ceylon was one of the things that I learned about early on in starting Sum. I was telling my really good friend from high school's father, he's from Iraq, hey, we're bringing over tahini. And one of our favorite things to do with it is to mix it with honey. And he was like, please, child, like I have been mixing tahini with sweeteners my whole life yeah. growing up in Iraq. And one of them is a date syrup. Oh, yeah. And so that just really spoke to me. And it's also the most amazing flavor combination. It's great. And and you can cook with it, too. Like date syrup is pretty versatile. I mean, palm ap- ap- molasses and date syrup, you see them in a lot of recipes. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're having a bit of an identity crisis because we think Ceylon might be more versatile than tahini. Oh, and shoot. the crew is like, what do we do with this? This is just amazing. I mean... We're, we really like to cook with our products, the whole team, yeah. and we're putting it on everything from fish to, you know, challah French toast. So it's yeah, pretty it's fun. Yeah, it's great. And so how is it selling? Like, are people buying uh, the new products? Yeah. Um, you know, chocolate has always been very slow and steady. People yeah. that know about it love it. It's kind of
of has this small little niche cult following, uh, which is great for us because we always have plenty of supply in the office and we're eating it all day long. And the Ceylon really just started, you know, in terms of replicating our strategy. We're hoping to see it in more restaurants soon. That's something we're really working on. But people are buying it online, so we're excited. Amy, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been so cool. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.